history with the podcast guy, Matt King. Hey everybody, thank you for listening to our podcast. Unfortunately, for some, our topics that we talk about may be offensive to some people. The topics that we discuss could also be triggers, and we want you to be aware of that. If you are in need of help, please talk to a professional, a family member, or a friend. We are not medical professionals, and we don't claim to be. We are just two guys with a microphone and a platform. Please listen with discretion. Welcome to This Time in History, guys. I'm Matthew, and we're back again to cover another uh, interview for the 2022 municipal elections. Two interviews every week right up until election time. If we get enough people that are interested, maybe we'll do three or four or five. With me today, he's running for city council in Ward 20, Scarborough Southwest. His name is Philip Mills. Welcome to the show, Philip. Thanks for having me. So this is your uh, chance to kind of introduce yourself and ultimately answer the question, why are you running, why this election, and why now? All right. Um, Well, why am I running? Uh, You know, I feel like it's very cheesy. A lot of people sort of refer to themselves as regular guys. Um, I really am a regular guy. I work a customer service job 40 hours a week, um, just trying to live in the city. And it feels prohibitively crushing financially. Like everything just, it feels like rent is so high and uh, rent is so, sorry, I said rent. Rent, food, you know, the necessities we need, the cost of everything is going up. And it sort of feels like the people we have in positions of power, they live very comfortable lives. Like they're financially well off enough that these issues are abstract to them. They can hear about them, they can sort of commiserate with us, but it's not really a concern for them. So affordability is sort of my big concern. Um, I want to say uh, just lower income individuals, I feel like don't have a voice on our city council. Uh, this election in particular, I guess it's really, um, I mean, we're not we're not done with the pandemic, but we're sort of, um, we're sort of moving through it societally, and uh, we just had a provincial election. I think I was sort of hoping for, maybe a lot of people were hoping for a different result than what we ended up with. Uh, I feel like we're sort of, we sort of know how the Ontario Conservatives sort of worry about lower income people. but And so it sort of feels like this is the time to be like, can okay. I, can I just jump? Um, sorry, can I just jump in there for a second? Yeah, sure. Wouldn't that have more to do with the? Um, I don't know if it's record setting, but um, I'm. I was told it was a very low voter turnout. Oh, I believe it was something like forty-four percent. Yeah. Yeah, very very low turnout. And I guess that's more. Um, I mean, I certainly don't really know what the reason for that was, except for. Um, maybe pandemic fatigue, people just weren't interested in, uh, in what was going on. Maybe the Liberal and NDP leaders weren't too compelling to voters. I don't know what the big deal was, but, you know, very low turnout. Just a very depressing kind of result. I will um, say that um, in my experience, and this goes for federal, provincial, and municipal, a vote for the incumbent is a vote for the incumbent, but a person who does not vote is also a vote for the incumbent. 
That's true. I do agree with that. So that is sort of an, an implicit um, acceptance for the provincial government, really. Um, yeah, so my main thought is, it's like, I feel like, so we're not going to, in my mind, get help from that sort of government. So I'm thinking, why can't we work towards policies that can help lower-income people municipally? And that's sort of, I'm thinking, I feel that urgency because I live where it feels crushing. You know, you're struggling to pay that rent. You're struggling to pay for groceries. The bills just keep stacking up. So that's, I want to say that's my motivation to run. That's awesome. And then um, I know that you, you, I think you, you, you're really, you recently put your papers in. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, a couple of weeks back. So I'm just wondering if you've had time to uh, develop any sort of platform and anything you want to share on that uh, subject. Um, so I've sort of, I've sort of, uh, I've written out a longish Twitter thread that was a bit of some of my thoughts. Um, one thing in particular that I was thinking of is a municipal minimum wage. They do have something like that in Seattle that they, I believe every year it's like based off inflation. Uh, it increases every year separate from their state and federal minimum wages. Uh, but I do feel like that's a big crux of one of my ideas. Um, I was thinking we could base it off of the uh, living wage. Uh, I really don't know how that's properly calculated. I use the website, um, it's like a group, Ontario Living Wage, and they claim that the living wage is uh, $22.08 an hour. Um, I think that if companies can't pay their employees at least that much, then the employees are sort of subsidizing their business at this point. You know, with, as I keep saying, inflation and all this stuff, the affordability. <laughs> Everything is just so high. Absolutely. Um, so I do have my, I think my main concern with a policy like that is, uh, I feel like this sounds sort of off topic, but I was asking someone uh, if municipalities could enact something like a rent control. And they sort of responded to me that that's covered under the Residential Tenancies Act, like the provincial. So I'm concerned that maybe there's a provincial act that would prevent a city from enacting a municipal minimum wage. That is, I'm. Uh, you know what? I asked this question um, in some of my interviews, and from what I get, if council were to vote to ask the province for either a municipal rent reduction or a municipal rent freeze, um, then then the the province can say yes or no. But at least the city has done its job, and then. Uh, I, I hate the phrase passing the buck, but that's essentially what the city would be doing. While we yeah. tried to do this, but it's your province that you elected, they, they said no. It does feel like a very frustrating, um, what can you do powers-wise. Now, in terms of the budget, um, you have the distinct, I don't know if it's uh, what word you want to use, but you are running against the current incumbent who happens to be John Tory's number two guy. He's the budget, <laughs> the budget chief. Guy. 
And um, I don't think I need to tell you that Toronto is bleeding money. Um, Absolutely. We have a $1.6 billion backlog in TCHC repairs. We are going to be almost half a half a billion dollar shortfall for the TTC, but the TTC CEO gets a twenty one percent raise, you know. And you know, I use this a lot with some of my interviews. Um, a lot of the events that are held within the city, you know, they are um, they are important to the city to our culture, to tourism. They're very, very important. However, Toronto is subsidizing, subsidizing most of these events. And we don't need to because these events, the, the organizations that hold these events are raking in hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars in corporate funding, sponsorship Absolutely. funding. They don't need the money from the city of Toronto. I don't even care if it's if it's fifty grand, a hundred grand that the city's giving them. It's not necessary. And no, I absolutely agree with all that. That's uh, a very interesting point. And one of the things that I had sort of said, where and it's sort of an opposite of what I've been saying of the not not in opposition to, but where the people in power are comfortable, so they don't worry about people who are poor. In the same way. They're chasing, you know, people who already have wealth, people who already have the ability to generate this stuff. They want to come to Toronto anyways. Why do we make it, why do we give them so much? They should want to be here. Exactly. Um, so I completely agree with you uh, on that stuff. I haven't even thought of it that way. As for um, the budget stuff, uh, I'm not... In economist, uh, wow, uh, economist, there we go, out of that in my mouth. You know, Gary Crawford, of course, would be uh, a bigger expert in that, but not if he's using his knowledge to, I want to say, do bad things for the city. It, that's very simplifying what I'm trying to say. Um, it's sort of someone who has the knowledge who who can take advantage of that. That's, I feel like, sort of what they're doing with someone like Gary Crawford, who sort of, who knows, who knows the system, who understands that stuff. Um, but as for, like, the budget shortfall, uh, like, in some specific stuff, I do feel like it is, in general, messed up priorities. Where we're focused, where we're throwing our money, and I feel like this might be a bit dicey to say out loud. Um, we give so much money to the Toronto police. <laughs> um, we just gave them another $25 million budget increase this year. They're above $1.1 billion, 2022. Um, just a little more than two weeks ago, they released... Um, a report about their use of force and race. And it was, the results are sort of obvious. And their only recourse, I, I feel like this is kind of a, a jumping topic, but I, I promise it's related to the budget. Um, their only recourse is an apology that most people don't even care to accept. Like, it's just like, okay, it just happened, you did that. 
Um, and we're just supposed to accept that that's whatever. Um, so kind of circle back to the budget. With no question, we always just give the police more and more cash. No matter how successful they are or, or if it's even necessary. So a big reimagination of the city budget, I think, would just be to take, let's say, $400 million from the Toronto police to use for anything else. <laughs> um, I was talking to my brother about this idea, and he thought it would be better if I had more specified what sort of things I would want to fund with that $400 million. But the thing that I was trying to suggest to him was that so much money annually that you could do so much with that money. It just If we just reimagine our budget and not so much focus on policing. I, I, I see where you're coming. Um, I mean, we can jump ahead a little bit and talk about crime and police. Um, just to address, I think I might have just. Uh, no, it's okay. It's okay. I covered both of those things. We can we can go back and forth. It's all good. Um, <clears throat> in terms of crime and police, specifically the police, I wonder if it's too late or um, the union is so uh, oh, powerful. So powerful. Thank you. That's the right word. That we can't change the wording uh, for the police contracts uh, to some sort of a, I don't know, some sort of a three strikes and you're out, um, and, and and fire these police officers yes. that that are that demonstrate racism, that demonstrate excessive use of force, such as, and I, I I'm sorry, I I know this is a maybe a bit of a harsh of an example, but James Fursillo comes to mind um we did an episode back on on my regular uh within this podcast uh a while back so uh i'm very familiar with his case and uh right. yeah so someone like him you know a three strikes and you're out and and it doesn't matter it wouldn't matter what the strikes were even if it 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 is a little uh, or uh, i hate to use that um, terminology, but like a little racist um, event or like a huge problem, it doesn't matter. It's still a strike. It's, bias. it's still exactly. It's still a strike, and then start getting rid of these police officers because I believe, and, and you could call me crazy, I believe <laughs> programs like Tavis and Carding could work if. They were done correctly, and they weren't left in hands of the police officers that interpret the law the way they want to. That's the problem with carding. And I think the big problem with it sort of does come from the culture of policing. I sort of feel like there's a lot of stuff where it's, um, a lot of stuff are good ideas in theory, but then in practice, it's the sort of specific attitudes of the people who get hired. Um, and I think a big part of like what you're saying with the, the three strikes, absolutely, like anything that should be so many, um, I wrote, I had mentioned, I wrote a long Twitter thread about some of my thoughts about running. And one of my things was I was doing a tweet by tweet, one word sentence of just different Toronto police scandals in the media to just sort of pepper the point that it happens so often that it like, it keeps happening and so often the consequences for these actions are a paid vacation. 
You know, they're suspended with pay. See, Absolutely insane. And, and, and that's my and, thought. And I also wanted to... At the same time, going back specifically to this, the report, the, the Youth of Force and Race Base report, if they don't want to call out the individual police officers who are the problem, if they don't want to make it an individual police officer problem, they want to make it a, well, this is a system-wide police issue, okay, then the entire police should be subject to the consequences. I agree, Which and... I mind of, like, taking the money away from them. I agree, and I am also a big believer that the fish stinks from the head. Yes. So, that's uh, that's James Raymer for you. Um, yes. I will say, though, on the flip side, like, I hear everything that you're saying, and I agree with everything you're saying, but there are neighborhoods in Toronto that could use more police. I, I, I'll give you a quick rundown. I used to live in Ward... Three, which is the former Ward 6, Etobicoke Lakeshore. Yeah. And we lived there for 13 years. We lived in a co-op, a, a, a townhousing co-op, and directly, uh, diagonally in front of us, we had two apartment buildings, which were a separate co-op. And they used to deal drugs out of the basketball court in front of those apartment buildings. And then that turned into dealing drugs inside the uh, one of the ground floor apartment units in the co-op. And then that turned into drive-by shootings right into that apartment. And then, you know, it just kept getting worse and worse over time. And I feel like the police have not done enough. The situation's still going on. That's why we left. Not to mention... Every holiday where there's fireworks, like we just had Canada Day, um, every so every weekend where there is a fireworks, they the the I, I hate to use this word, but I'm going to use it. The gangsters, I guess I don't know what to call them. Uh, the name. I, I, I get what you're trying to say. They they would buy a bunch of fireworks and they would have some sort of a ward games style. Uh, uh, game where they're shooting fireworks at each other they're shooting like they have them in the hand they have a towel around their hand and they they and they point them at each other and they shoot them at each other and then they're shooting them at cars they're shooting them at innocent bystanders they're shooting them at ttc buses they're even brazen enough to shoot them at police cars the police but the police the police are aware of the situation that's happening and every every time there's fireworks it's the same thing every time there's a drive-by shooting same thing it's it's no it's not enough. I do I do know that John Tory vetoed. Um, there was a, a some sort of a um, I, I don't know it, some sort of technology that you can put on uh, on top of buildings, which right now we can only put on TCHC buildings because they're owned by the city, and it tells you um, where and what direction the gunshots are, are happening and like the distance and stuff. And you put that technology on each tr- uh, TCHC building. The problem is it costed a lot of money. So John Tory and council vetoed it. I guess they didn't want to pay for the, for the money. Um, and I'm just wondering your thoughts on everything I just said. Sorry. I kind of went on a long winded no, no, thing I, there. Yeah. Um, all, all good stuff. It's like, these are all good questions to ask. I, I do sort of want to say, unfortunately, um, I feel like I don't have a good answer for that. My only real thought is um, all those things we mentioned, that the, you know, the string of stuff, the things that's getting worse, I sort of just feel like that's more evidence of 
Um, well, I don't know. I'll, I'll, it's more evidence of no matter how much money we give the police. They're not doing their job. They're not doing their job. Whether and, it's... It, <laughs> like there's, a, there's a part of me, a weird part of me, that, that is worried of, of being so vocally kind of anti-police that their response uh, as, a, as a unit would be to not respond to stuff. And I've sort of pondered out loud, I've sort of thought to myself, would residents even notice the difference if, uh, if they felt so disgruntled by someone who wanted to take away their funding that they stopped just lying and stuff? Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it is a, I feel like it is a complicated question um, because naturally the thought is, well, if you take away the money from the police, they won't be able to do their job as well. But again, as we've just said, they're not doing their job now. And it's, I don't know what we need to do to make the police officers better. Like, keep in mind, I've not said, you know, take away all the money, like defund to zero. Um, I do believe they still have a, a vital role in, in communities provided that they are good people. You know what I mean? No, but I understand what you mean. Like, I, I would take it like... Okay, if you're a stockbroker, I know this is a horrible example, but I'm going to use it anyway. If you're a stockbroker, right, and the market goes down, you lose money, right? Right. Because you're you're either that or you didn't do your job properly and your stocks lost money. So if the police are not doing their job properly, there should be a bigger threat to them losing their jobs. Absolutely. You know, if, you know, if, if I'm pursuing something and i have a lawyer and he's not doing his job i'm going to get rid of him and do and get get another lawyer I, it's probably a horrible example but i think you understand where i'm coming from so uh, my understanding is instead of your suggestion that we take the cash away we focus more on the individual employees yeah because because i don't know that i don't know that taking the cash away you'd be successful doing that that's just my personal opinion and who am i no, but I get that. But I, I think my more thought is um, it's sort of where the city is okay spending the money and where they sort of recoil at spending the money. So, in fact, your your example of those um, uh, those kind of antennas on the TCHC buildings, um, that's a good example where it's like, you know, they don't want to spend the money on that, but they're okay just very quickly getting together a security contract to patrol parks for a million bucks well it just it happens immediately one of the reasons they said they didn't want to uh, put those antennas or technology or whatever it was is because oh that's racist you can't do that it's not racist the only buildings the city owns are tchc buildings those are the only buildings they can put them on it's not racist yes it can be you if you look at it through a different lens yes yeah, it can be racist because there are a lot of uh, minority fa- uh, um, uh, commu- uh, cultures, communities, whatever the word is I'm looking for. I apologize if I'm not using the right word. But a, a lot of different um, uh, minorities live in TCHE buildings. But that 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 we're not targeting those people. I, I, I'm certainly not targeting but it, and, and it doesn't mean that those people are the ones shooting the guns. It just means that that's where the activity a lot of the times is coming from. That's a fact. 
and we can um, we can stick our head in the sands and 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 ignore it and say, well, every other solution you guys come up with is racist, or we can take our head out of the sand and we can attempt to fix the problem. Well, and so I I get what you're saying. I feel like in my mind where we where we take this money away from the Toronto police and. Again, as I've said, I've not been specific about where that money would go. And I'm sure a lot of people wouldn't fully trust the city to use it in a good enough way. I'm saying with, like, quote fingers, good enough. Um, but I think is, is giving more, more money to the police the solution? Or I guess it sounds like a huge societal ask and maybe it's not even possible with municipal governments themselves, maybe it is a job of bigger governments, but it's like we should be addressing material conditions of people's lives. Like that's why crime happens in like lower income areas. Absolutely, um, absolutely. And so that's that's my that's my thought. It's not a specific answer. Um, it's more lofty, head in the clouds. Society can be improved, sort of thought. But that's. That's sort of my thinking when it comes to taking that money from the police and using it for anything else. Absolutely. And uh, so moving along to transit, I wanted to talk, you know, you're representing Scarborough. Scarborough is starving for more transit. And I'm just wondering if you are in favor of more subways, LRTs, or anything else. You know, we... We keep having this conversation of transit over the last how many years. We went from David Miller wanting LRTs, Rob Ford wanting subways, John Tory wants Smart Track, and it's, we've, it's we we flip flopping. That is, uh, <laughs> I was about to say, um, what is your swearing policy on this podcast? Uh, you can let it rip. It's all good. <laughs> I was just gonna say the. The flip-flopping, the changing the decisions is what's fucked Scarborough for more than two decades. And what's really going to be my gripe here, and I say gripe because there's nothing we can do to fix it now, but they've, they've just like, they've, they've just objected to having any sort of responsibility for Scarborough Transit for so long that now we're about to lose our RT, you know, that gets people to their jobs, that gets people to where they need to go. Uh, and then for eight years, they'll have to suffer through shuttle buses. They're cramped and slower and just aren't as reliable. Uh, and I think that's my big, that's my, that's also my big ward specific issue is that Scarborough is just completely, I feel like we're the black sheep of the city. It's sort of everything comes to us last. I've heard that a lot. I've heard that a okay. lot. Um, I will say though that if they would stop having this, if they had stopped having this conversation years ago, I mean the shovels have been in the ground what the last two three years. Yeah. But perhaps if they stopped having that conversation, the shovels could have been in the ground for the last eight years, and we'd be no, farther that's, along that's exactly in the project. What I'm saying. It's the fact that they won't stop. They're just, oh, actually, uh, I get what you're saying. What I'm saying is, like, they've ignored it. They've done the opposite of ignoring it. They've just not stopped talking about it. Exactly. Um, Um, So I think my phrasing of ignored it is wrong. I think I'm more thinking of, you just don't care that it happens. And now with the TTC facing uh, uh, almost 
half a billion dollar uh, shortfall for next year and the TTC CEO getting a 21% raise. Oh god, I didn't even actually know that. That's ridiculous. I'm I'm really worried that the next the next uh, plank to fall is going to be a, um, a fare increase. Yes. And I'm just wondering um, your th- your thoughts on that. I mean, personally, uh, as part of my my thoughts, I would love if we could somehow work with our federal and provincial governments. And again, we we sort of we've talked about this. Uh, seems like a slow chance of. <laughs> Getting more funding for the TTC with the, I know there's so many things the TTC needs, but with that specifically with the intent of uh, decreasing fares to increase, I mean, increase ridership, that's not just for the TTC, that would obviously also be for, you know, climate stuff and, and health, but, you know, that that is where I'd want that to happen, but you're right, realistically, we are looking at a another fare increase and I, I say that knowing that I mean I don't have a car that's I use I use TTC to get to work that's and it's just like everything else just creeps up it's more and more and we're all just sort of drowning in the city and like, it, not even just someone like me um, who's making around $39,000 a year um, people who make even a little bit more than me it sort of feels like everyone's talking about the crushing weight of the city. Sorry, I completely jumped topics because I don't. It's all good. Um, I'm just <laughs> wondering. The TTC. I'm just wondering about, uh, in terms of transit, like, what do you see for the future of Toronto? I mean, are we just going to have a whole messed up uh, um, half subway, half LRT? Because um, personally. What I'd like to see is them extend the subway uh, from Kipling Station down to Sherway and then down to Lakeshore, uh, um, Long Branch Loop. And um, since I've lived in Ward 3, I'll tell you that half the time the streetcar's not even running, whether it's because oh, yeah. it's winter or construction. It ain't running. Is that, like, uh, is that 504? Yeah, so... I yeah. think oh, yeah. I think personally, west of Union Station, it needs to go. All of it. And they should make subway stations at the bottom along Lakeshore and connect it to Union Station. And then run that past Union right into Scarborough. Maybe going as far as to go into Durham region. Uh, no, that's just that, my thought. Um, I feel like that would make a good replacement for... Um, I feel like a lot of people spend a lot of time talking about a relief for Line 1. I feel like that would sort of be a good substitute for that. Yeah. What you were just saying, like the, I mean, because it's just, I think the big concern is just like people trying to get home and you cut through just a lot of that by going straight. Yeah, no, I think that's a good idea. I'll tell you, I'll tell you, I drive, okay? But when I go home from work, Every single way that I go home is under construction right now. So I live I live in Ward 1. I live at Kipling and Finch. So right now, because of the Finch LRT, Kipling and Finch is destroyed. They're down to one, one lane, and it's very slow. Uh, Albion and Finch, same thing. Martin Grove and Finch, same thing. Islington and Finch, same thing. And I, I work on, uh, I, uh, I, I use steels to go home. So I, I take steels and then I try to go down Kipling, but it's it's a no-go. I literally have to go on the 400 
and then take 401 West, get off at Weston, and go all the way around in a huge big circle just to avoid sitting in traffic and not moving for, I don't know, half an hour, an hour. It's ridiculous, right. and I'm Random just wondering. question. You inter- mean like, um, it's like condo construction, building construction? No, no, it's, it's like road construction. It's road construction, LRT construction. Here's what I think is very, like, funny about that. Like, when the pandemic started, you know, March 2020, everyone was inside, and, like, all the cars were off the road. <laughs> it really feels like we could have gone on a construction blitz. Absolutely. <laughs> And the other question I have in terms of, uh, I guess it's a little bit of transit, a little bit of budget. Um, yeah. I'm just wondering if the city would be willing to do something like um, have construction companies bid on jobs, but the, the, the point of the bid is to be, it's to be done within the time allotted and the budget allotted, because I find that a lot of these construction projects, not only do they go over on time, they go way over on budget. And it's costing and like, this. What are the consequences for that? There's nothing right now. There's no nothing. No, nobody's willing to stand up and say enough is enough. I completely agree with you. So moving along, I want to talk, talk briefly about uh, the homeless problem in the city of Toronto and affordable housing and how maybe one can help the other. Um, yes, I mean, oh no, I, I think this is really where. Uh, my ignorance is going to shine. Um, <laughs> I, my mind is just, uh, again, with the, the feeling, the urgency of everything is falling apart, everything is feeling heavy and hard, uh, my thought towards affordable housing is just, it needs to happen. <laughs> the problem being, of course, that I, have, I don't really know um, how to get that what are the issues sort of in the way? Well, a lot of the um, problem I find is that um, the, it's, it starts at the developers. The developers, I, I'm not in on the meetings. I don't know, but this is what I've heard. And from what I heard, I can surmise that the developers promise a certain percentage of affordable housing, and then it goes backwards and it doesn't happen. And then we're here, we're left with what we have. Uh, the TCHC, I don't know if they're still building new buildings or taking yeah, over new buildings. Yeah, but repair backlogs for those. Like... Absolutely. And the homeless problem is just getting worse in the city of Toronto. Um, personally, I, I watched like I watched on the news the encampments that uh, were torn down and people that were displaced, but... If the city was doing its job in the first place, they <coughs> excuse me, sorry. If the city was doing the, their job in the first place, they wouldn't have been there. Absolutely, that's like that's that's a policy failure. Like um, we we really do look at the homeless, and it's sort of I feel like it is a societal view that it's personal responsibility um, that they ended up there because they failed, and. For a lot of people, that's simply just not the case. And, I mean, I feel like that does sort of go along with my thoughts of a municipal minimum wage, um, where businesses can't afford to pay employees enough. Like, I think of, like, someone who works at Tim Hortons, for example, I feel like as a society, our thought is more like, well, that's an easy entry-level job. Like, why, why do they deserve to make a living wage? 
but at the same time, uh, you know, people who make more money, you go to these stores and you take advantage of the services. So what you're saying is that you want them there. You want the services to be available to you, but you don't want them to make enough money to live comfortably in the city. And uh, I really hope that's my connection between that and the homeless situation makes sense. No, absolutely. Um, this it's just, we're not... Well, and what I said about policing, it's all about material conditions and how things are just getting so much harder. Absolutely. Things are... This city's becoming... It's not becoming. It is too expensive to live in. <laughs> it's just... And um, I... And really, this does parallel with the homeless situation. People on ODSP and people on Ontario Works. And then you've got, you've got a certain segment of people who kind of think of them as, like, why are we worried about them? They're freeloaders. <laughs> like, $1,000 a month. First of all, can you think of any place in the city where you can live for that amount of money? And second of all, they're just, they're, it's like, it's poverty. It's forced poverty. Like, I mean, there's so many rules with that stuff. Sorry, I, I am like that. It's not completely connected, but. No, no, you're preaching to the choir. Believe me. <laughs> You know, and uh, just like how it said with affordable housing, and I'm like, this is where my England shows, except that I want to do good. Um, I don't know what the city can do for people living on ODSP and OW, except for somehow get affordable housing to exist and for people to be able to live in them. That's it. It really does, in my mind, feel like it's that simple. Absolutely. And uh, moving on to uh, public health, you know, we're not out of the pandemic yet, even though everyone seems to think we are. Everyone's acting like it. Yeah. And uh, I'm just wondering if you had any thoughts on uh, on our response to, uh, uh, specifically Toronto's response to COVID and how they handled it and how it's going now and anything else you want to add on that topic? Um, I will say Toronto... Now, we're, we're talking about the entirety of the pandemic starting, like, really at the beginning, March 2020. Yes. Um, Toronto was always more willing to act than, of course, uh, Doug Ford's conservatives, which is, like, um, uh, not Tam, who's our, Dr. DeVilla. Um, you know, she kept, didn't she keep the masks on in schools even when, I, uh, I think I might be mixing up. You know what? I should be reading up on it before I, I, I talk about things I don't know. No, the, um, the kids were... in general... There were, peri- there, there were periods where the kids were in school when they shouldn't have been. I'll give you that. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. Either way, it just... Um, both John Tory and Dr. Davila did seem like they were more interested in protecting us than the conservatives were. The conservatives... Sorry, the provincial conservatives... Provincial conservatives sort of felt like they had to be dragged to do the right thing. And even then, it was always very kind of short-served. Like, I work as a as a security guard. Um, I was labeled essential, so I worked the whole time. Like, I didn't, I didn't stop working at all during the pandemic. And I just think, um, were security guards labeled essential because construction kept going? And for construction, security guards are, they were just... Insurance is a whole, I'm sorry, that's, uh, that is a very abstract thought, so I am jumping all over the place. Um, I do just, I don't think I have a lot of expertise to talk about our public health, but I, it does feel like 
it's frustrating now, where we are, that we have essentially pretended that it's over. Um, I think mask mandates, they should have just kept them at least on public transit. Uh, I think they're out of they're out of hospitals now too, right? Yeah, the only the only place that's still in is long term uh, long term care. Yeah, yikes. Uh, <laughs> so I mean, we're just our response now is just acceptance, like sad, miserable acceptance that we accomplished, but we didn't. It's not done, and it's. We're going to get sick some more, and bad things, I don't know, it's, it sounds so doomery when I say it like that. That's, listen, hey, um, public health is a hard uh, file to even <laughs> even comment on, so. Yeah, I, I don't imagine, if elected, that I would be placed on a, a public health portfolio, I don't think that would be for me. Um, in terms of uh, endorsements, I ask everybody this question. Uh, is there anyone running for mayor or other city council positions or school trustees that you'd be willing to endorse at this time? Um, I I feel like I'm not I'm not willing to give my full throated endorsement for anyone, uh, just because we're not we're not really in the full swing of things yet. Um, I feel like we still have time to figure out who everyone is. I will say, um, mayoral candidate uh, Philip De Cruz. He was the first person to reach out to me. Very nice guy. I do like him. Uh, I also like, I think they're both running in Spadana, Fort York. Um, Igor and Ozma. I like them too. I don't know them personally. I haven't talked to either of them, but I like them. Um, but otherwise, I don't know enough about anyone else. And as I said, I just, I, I'm not ready yet for that. Okay. And, um, before I let you go, do you have a website or anything that you want to share? Your Twitter, and this is your chance to talk to uh, voters directly because Ontario is my number one market. And guys, just before he talks, I want to let you know um, voting day is October 24th. The only way to affect change is to be part of it. And now, anything that you want to say, the floor is yours. All right. Um, well, uh, I don't have a website as of yet. But I do have a Twitter account for my campaign. It's at PJ4TO. That's uh, F-O-R, not the number four. Um, And I, you know, when I get more stuff, you know, website, maybe a campaign Facebook, that'll all be available on the Twitter. But that's all I've got going for now. Um, Canvassing going to start soon. Obviously, Twitter's not real life. I'm not going to get the voters that way. So I'll be out there. Probably within the next couple of weeks, hopefully. That's amazing, and I thank you so much for doing this interview and trusting me to be able to facilitate that. I wish you nothing but luck on your campaign trail, and uh, I'll be watching. You know, I tell all the people that I interview, election night for me, it's like Christmas. I get a bag of popcorn, I get a you know a soda pop or whatever, and I I sit in front of the TV, and I not only do I watch the the, the obviously the mayor's race, but the individual wards, the school trustees, and not just for the city of Toronto, all over the GTA, because I want to know who is where and who wins, and and what the issues are, and what the deciding factors for the person who got elected were. Yeah, honestly, it's like, um, I'm just having fun running. Like, in my mind, like, I got these good ideas. Obviously, I want to run to win. But, like, it's actually just, it's kind of just fun to be a part of it, you know? 
Absolutely, absolutely. And thank you again for coming on, and uh, I wish you nothing but luck. And you have a so I really appreciate you having me on. Thank <laughs> you.